you're listening to the Science at the Local podcast. I'm Hamish Clark. And I'm Kevin Joseph. And we had an interesting chat this week with uh, John Lescu. He's a sleep eco-physiologist. How did that conversation go? It went really well. It's a fascinating topic. So basically, um, uh, sleep eco-physiology is trying to understand sleep in the animal kingdom. So that's where the eco comes from. So for those of you who thought sleep science was purely a human endeavor, think again. (laughs) Sleepy dolphin. Yeah, well, speaking of dolphins, they've got this, according to John, they can sleep with half their brain at a time. So there's all these amazing patterns of sleep that uh, are are quite different uh, sometimes to to human patterns. Um, He talks about how some animals look like they're sleeping, but they're not, and other ones... Uh, a kind of vice versa. They might be flying a bird and happens to be sleeping at the same time. So it's a, it's a really interesting conversation. Hmm. All right. Look forward to hearing it. Stay tuned, everyone. Now, a quick editorial interjection. Uh, the interview starts halfway through a conversation, which I had to include because it was a great little story that John told that I thought gave some uh, good insight into how science works in the real world. Yeah. We were discussing how high mouse can jump. Okay. Well, what's yeah. that got to do with sleep? Uh, <laughs> we're, we're doing a research project with some folks in psychology, and they work on lab mice. And normally I don't like to work on rodents, lab rodents, because okay. they're not really animals. <laughs> um, but, uh, but this group is interested in looking at sleep in lab mice. And um, because mice are very small, the technology that I would normally use to record brain activity, this small little data logger, it weighs too much and the animal can't wear it. So instead they have to have a tether, so a cable coming from their head to the computer. And so we need an open roofed enclosure for this and we had to have the walls high enough that the animal can't jump out right so then we were scratching our heads thinking well how high can a mouse jump (laughs) these are the kinds of questions which the broader public perhaps doesn't appreciate scientists are discussing that's it it. well look thanks for your time john i appreciate it um maybe we could just start if you could just give a quick um explanation of of where you work and what what you research um, so I'm a comparative animal uh, sleep uh, researcher. So uh, I study sleep in non-human, non-lab rat animals to try to provide insight into the function of sleep, but also the ecological relevance of sleep in the lives of animals. Um, we have some ideas um, on the purpose of sleep. But we have a very poor understanding of how wild animals have, uh, sleep and how they change their sleep strategies to maximize their reproductive success. Um, so I'm interested in the evolution of sleep. How did sleep come to be? How did it evolve? Were there new sleep functions that came about over evolutionary time? Um, and then how do ecological factors influence how, when, where, how deep animals sleep? So um, I, uh, I remember doing undergraduate psychology and we had a, a session on sleep and uh, we had to do a little project on sleep in the animal kingdom. And I was kind of blown away at this you know, obvious fact in retrospect that yes, animals sleep and there's a huge diversity in how much they sleep and the kinds of sleep they have. 
Um, so a, a topic which I kind of consider to be perhaps a, a human topic or a, a psychology or neuroscience topic has a clear ecological foundation too, hence the eco-physiology coming into sleep. How did, how did you get into the field? Um, I suppose it came about in my undergraduate uh, degree. So I was in a zoology major. I studied at the University of Guelph in Ontario, Canada. And although it was a zoology major and I took courses in physiology and evolution and behavior, I was really surprised that there was never a discussion about sleep even though this made up, you know, one third of our lives. So if I live to be 75 years old, I'll have spent the equivalent of 25 years asleep. And, and despite being a really prominent behavior in the lives of animals, I felt this was a topic that was woefully uncovered. Um, so that kind of piqued my curiosity. The absence of it caught, piqued my curiosity. Um, and then when I was looking around for places to do uh, a master's, um, which is sort of more common in North America, I think, than it is here, um, I was trying to set myself apart. I wanted to be different. You know, if you study cancer, there's probably 16 million people studying cancer. So how do you distinguish yourself in that type of field? Where, so I really wanted to stand out and do something that other people weren't doing. And I knew I wanted to do something about sleep. And, um, yeah, and I suppose most sleep research is a clinical based on humans and human sleep disorders or applied research on rodents. Um, and so I thought, well, let's, let's take my zoology training and work on comparative aspects of animal, non-human animal sleep. And that took me to Indiana, and there I was working on the very topic that you were talking about. Um, I did phylogenetic comparative analyses, trying to explain a cross-species variation in how long animals sleep. So there was um, comparative data for about 100 mammalian species. I think at the time it was 84, but it's more now. Um, of how long these animals sleep, and you know, some things like horses only sleep three hours a day, but some possums sleep 20 hours a day. So what are the reasons for this across-species variation? And if you make the assumption that a cross-species variation in sleep time reflects variation in sleep need, then uh, identifying the determinants of sleep time should provide insight into the function of those states. So that was my master's in Indiana, was doing those type of phylogenetic comparative analyses. Um, and uh, so those type of studies are really sort of dear, dear to my heart, I guess. Yeah, <clears throat> that's great. And so uh, you've been in the field for a few years. Are you seeing it start to shift or change? Is there becoming more attention on the topic? Yeah, I, I think that if... So I got into sleep research in uh, 2003. And, uh, yeah, in the early 2000s, if you were to ask me or a sleep researcher, what is the function of sleep? I think people would tell you maybe 10 different ideas. <laughs> yeah. And... They would be non-mutually exclusive. They could all be occurring. 
but many of them were black boxes. They were just some buzzwords um, that were thrown around without much specificity to them. And I think in the last 10 years, there's been a real development in one, an appreciation that sleep does have lots of different functions and those functions might vary in different species. Um, and two, the mechanism behind different functions. So instead of just saying, oh, sleep is for memory processing, we have a way better understanding of how that memory consolidation during sleep actually works. And there seems to be at least two different mechanisms for that. But um, we have a much better understanding, I think, now of what sleep actually does. I wouldn't be surprised if in 20 years, a couple of people that are in the field right now get the Nobel Prize, because this wow. is a question that's been debated for millennia since yeah. the ancient Greeks. Mm -hmm. And I think for the first time ever, we're starting to get real resolution and consensus about what sleep is doing. Well, well good luck. Um, it's, I'm not one of the people. <laughs> so um, who, who are those people, or, or just more generally, who have you looked up to um, uh, in, in the field? I think the two biggies for me would be um, James Kruger. Uh, James Kruger is at the University of Washington, or maybe it's Washington State University, but it's in Spokane, Spokane, Washington, and uh, Giulio Tononi, uh, T-O-N-O-N-I, and he's at um, the University of Wisconsin. And their major contribution, which was not made simultaneously, Jim Kruger's contribution came first, um, was the realization, I mean, what Jim did back in the early 1990s is Jim asked the question, what is the basic, the most fundamental unit that sleeps? Until he asked that question, people looked at sleep in humans and said sleep is this profound behavioral shutdown, so the whole brain is sleeping. And because of work that was going on in dolphins at the time and marine mammals, uh, work that found that dolphins could sleep unihemispherically. They yes, could, they could keep that. They could keep one eye open and swim continuously, and half the brain slept while the other half of the brain was awake. And some of that um, work in marine mammals suggested that sleep was regulated independently within each hemisphere. So if you kept one half of the dolphin brain awake, that half of the brain showed an increase in sleep intensity, we can call it, um, during subsequent sleep. Uh, and so that finding caused Jim to question, well, what is it that's actually sleeping? And in, What in the a heck is sleep anyway? Yeah, and so in a paper in 1993, a very seminal paper, he said that probably any, any collection of neurons, small collection of neurons, brain cells, will sleep. And this is an emergent property of a small interconnected network. And this caused people to think about sleep very differently because if sleep need lies at the level of the brain cell and not the entire brain, then if you use one, if you use a cluster of brain cells more when you're awake, those brain cells should sleep 
more intensely during subsequent sleep. And the following year, in 1994, that was tested by a group in Switzerland. And they, uh, they, they made right-handed humans vibrate their arm for eight hours. Okay. So it quite a... It's a boring, lot of vibration. It's a lot of vibration. It's a lot of vibration. They just have to shake it. Just shake it a lot. And, um, and what they found was is that the part of the brain that's receiving projections from that arm, in fact, slept more deeply or more intensely uh, than the other part of the brain that was receiving projections from an arm that was not vibrating. That's and so, really cool. so that's called local sleep homeostasis. And that whole body of work now forms the foundation of several hypotheses for the function of sleep. And those ideas were crystallized by Jim Kruger back in 1993. So I think he is a big name in the field, still is. He was just in Australia. Well, he's in Sydney right now visiting, visiting. He was just at the Austral Australasian Sleep Association meeting last uh, Saturday in Adelaide. And then the other person, Giulio Tononi, uh, Giulio Tononi and his longtime collaborator, uh, Chiara Cirelli, also in Wisconsin, the two of them in 2003 came out with a hypothesis for the function of sleep called synaptic homeostasis. And they build on Jim's local sleep ideas. And they argue that during the day, when you're interacting with the environment, your brain is undergoing changes. You have a increase in the strength of connections and perhaps new connections as well. So at the end of a day, your brain is, is more interconnected. And that's how you learn. You know, you learn by building on connections in your brain. And over the course of a day, this is a really good process, but it's not sustainable because your brain's going to run out of space. It's going to run out of energy. You know, so you need some mechanism to check that increase in, in strength, synaptic strength. And they argue, with a lot of good support, local sleep homeostasis being one of those supporting views or supporting uh, lines of evidence, is that sleep prunes connections in the brain. It reduces synaptic strength. So that, that's not to say that sleep promotes forgetting, because obviously you, you don't. But connections circuits in your brain that were used more during wakefulness and therefore became stronger are still reduced, but the relative change persists the next day. It's just the circuits that were not used, they become weaker in an absolute sense. Um, and so that's synaptic homeostasis, and that has a lot of support, few detractors, um, and so I think the two of those guys, and perhaps Kiara as well, perhaps the three of them, are probably headed for a Nobel Prize at some oh, point in the future. That's fascinating. That's a really interesting insight. <clears throat> um, just going back to your comment about dolphins, um, it, it reminded me of a question I wanted to ask, which was, um, you know, we think we know what sleep is, but by looking uh, outside the human species, what kind of surprises have we found? Um, <clears throat> maybe different kinds of sleep or a different understanding of, of how it happens in, in other creatures. 
Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, one of the, we think of one of the hallmarks of sleep is that it's this profound behavioral shutdown. This is a very human centric view because that's what we do. But there are a lot of animals that um, have sleep behavior that we know they're sleeping because we look at their brain activity. But from a behavior standpoint, we probably wouldn't have realized it's a sleep. You know, um, rabbits and a lot of birds can sleep with their eyes open. Uh, ostriches sleep with their neck held periscopically above the ground and their eyes open and they're asleep. Uh, cows and sheep and horses, uh, animals that chew their cud, they can chew their cud during <laughs> sleep. Uh, dolphins can um, dolphins can swim. Uh, uh, eared seals, otarid seals can paddle a flipper while they're sleeping. Um, and frigate birds, a paper that just came out in Nature Communications, showed that frigate birds can fly while sleeping. Uh, by looking, and they looked at brain activity, not just based on GPS movement or something, but but EEG studies of wild frigate birds showed that they sleep while circling on um, rising currents. So a lot of animals do some pretty remarkable things that um, if we didn't have the EEG looking at brain activity, we'd never have known that these animals are sleeping. Wow, and so... Um... <clears throat> Do you think it, it would be possible to um, to observe some of these patterns purely by watching, or do you really need to get in and, and take some of these internal measurements? I think in the end you have to have um, measures of EEG. I think there's enough examples out there that behavior alone is can be misleading because of rabbits, because of dolphins, because of frigate birds and ruminants. Um, and it also goes the other way as well. You can have animals like sloths that can look asleep but actually be awake because these animals rely on crypsis um, as an anti-predator behavior. So they tuck their head under their arm. They remain motionless. People look at them and say, oh, that sloth is sleeping. But the study, the EEG-based studies have shown that those animals are in fact wide awake. So, oh, so, so what's sorry? So what's crypsis? Uh, crypsis is just um, it's an anti-predator strategy to remain immobile, so a predator does not detect you because you are still. Okay. Yep. Yeah. So it goes both ways. You can have um, sleeping animals look awake, and you can have awake animals look asleep, and you need the brain activity to distinguish between these. So. Um... Is it possible then that uh, a human kind of going vacant for a moment might actually be sleeping even though it looks like they're awake? Yeah, I suspect that um, if, you know, because of the work of Jim Kruger, and this has been followed up by studies on rodents and, and in humans, um, humans that have been implanted with deep brain electrodes um, because they're epileptics and they need these electrodes to determine the source of their seizures. Um, so when you look at the, the sleeping patterns of these humans and rodents that have been implanted with deep brain electrodes, you find that sleep can occur locally in the human brain as well. You can have certain brain regions, um, perhaps if you're sitting in a very monotonous, boring lecture, 
uh, or you're listening to a politician talk or something like this, uh, yes, then part of the brain can switch off in a sense and enter sleep while the rest of the brain is still awake. So do you keep an eye on how sleep is kind of seen more broadly in society? Do you feel like we're giving it more attention or, or is it still fairly neglected as a source of health and an understanding of you know, human behavior and physiology and psychology? I think in, uh, in the Australian context, I think it still has a ways to go to get where certainly where North America is and probably parts of um, Western Europe. There is a greater understanding that sleep hygiene, as it's called, is as important as maintaining a good diet and uh, having good exercise, that sleep is, is one facet of what makes a healthy lifestyle. Too much sleep has consequences for you, too little sleep has consequences for you, and a human needs around eight hours of sleep. And there's a greater appreciation of that, but I think we do have some ways to go. I think um, technology is not helping things, that we have people using iPads, iPhones into the evening hours. They're exposing themselves to high levels of light at night at times when, you know, at times of the day when the only natural sources of light are astronomical, are stars and the moon. And um, so we're messing around with our body rhythms, which can have um, downstream effects on um, sleep continuity, sleep depth, sleep timing, and uh, these have consequences for human health and well-being. So these are all problems that we have to overcome. They're not uniquely Australian problems, but these do need to be uh, thought about, I think. Yeah, yeah, I can, I can imagine that we're going to have to devote a lot more attention to it. <clears throat> I follow um, basketball, and I remember reading that uh, a player for the Golden State Warriors, uh, uh, had, had credited someone with uh, changing his sleep patterns and, and that improved his his play over a season. Yeah. Uh, especially with their routines of flying around a lot and shifting time zones. Yeah, yeah. I think people need to um I think people need to limit their caffeine and alcohol intake in the evenings, uh maintain a fairly constant bedtime, a constant uh, uh time when you wake up in the morning. Um, limit your exposure to night light in the evening, particularly blue shifted LED lights um, favoring a red shifted light at that time of the day. What would an example of the blue shifted versus red shifted be? Um, there's in the newest update for the iPad, there's a night light or a, I think it's a, <laughs> of I course there what, is. Yeah, I don't know what their what their description of it is, but it's a an an evening light, a red shifted uh, light source. And this is in response to data showing that blue LEDs, which is really just bright white light, but it has a lot of blue in it, um, that those wavelengths impair a certain, the release of a certain hormone called melatonin. And, and melatonin um, uh, undergoes a variation over the 24 hour day and uh, you can uh, mess up this variation that can have consequences for um, sleep timing as well. And so by switching to red-shifted lights in the evening, you can restore this natural cycle in melatonin. 
Um, I can imagine that must have impacts beyond humans too. We're, we've created so many urban environments that the, the natural light that many creatures and animals are exposed to would be very different from before all this artificial lighting came into play. Yeah, for sure. I have um, two PhD students now that are working on the f what I think are the first studies looking at the effects of light pollution, nighttime light pollution, on sleep uh, neurophysiology of wildlife. There have been some studies that looked at sleep behavior in um, cavity nesting birds. This was work done in Europe. Um, it's not so realistic though because these are uh, the bird is a small tit but it's in a nest box and then they put a light in the nest box which right. I don't know how natural that is. <laughs> yep. um, in our case we're working with pigeons which are I think the ultimate human commensal bird um, and black swans at Albert Park Lake here in Melbourne and then we have a captive population of uh, wallabies, Tamar wallabies, and we're looking at brain activity in these animals now um, to see how does light pollution affect sleep in these mm. in these three different species. Great. Well, look, it's a fascinating topic. I could go on, but I probably should uh, wrap it up there. Um, thanks so much for your time, John. It's been really interesting uh, hearing about your work. Cheers. And um, cheers for that, Hamish. Yeah, I look forward to following it over time. Yeah. Thanks very much for the opportunity. You've been listening to the Science at the Local podcast, brought to you by Hamish Clark and Kevin Joseph. If you like what you've heard, look us up on iTunes or subscribe at soundcloud.com slash scienceatthelocal, where you can also find show notes with links to content from the episode. Thanks to our partners, Winmalee and Springwood Neighbourhood Centres and Inspiring Australia.